Next up, uh, we have uh, Stephen Healy to talk with us. I'm also really excited um, about this presentation. I only met um, Stephen yesterday, but I'm a huge fan of the Community Economies project that he's a part of. Um, so I'm really excited that he's um, able to be here today to talk to the Green Institute Conference. Stephen's a Senior Research Fellow at the Institute for Culture and Society, the University of Western Sydney, and a recent arrival to Australia. He has a doctorate in geography, and his research focuses on community-based approaches to sustainable economic development. And today he's going to talk to us about the Commons. Thanks, Stephen. Now that my physical comedy routine is over, uh, good morning, everybody. And um, thanks very much to Tim Hollow and uh, the Green Institute conference organizers, particularly Clancy and Claire, for um, the chance to speak today and an opportunity to think together. And thanks as well to the previous speakers. So for those of you who weren't here yesterday, um, there were some outstanding uh, talks in the morning and then some concurrent sessions. And I think this conference is off to a remarkable start. So I'm really, really excited to be here. And um, what I want to talk to you today a little bit about is a contemporary use of the word commons um, that the Community Economies Research Network is working with um, in various projects around the world, and along with lots of other people who seem to be talking about a concept that's quite old but is being given new life. Um, so Tim suggested that I talk about the what, the how, and the why of commoning. That was his title. Um, and I'll offer you my take on that. And I just want to say that um, some of what I'm going to say resonates and indeed overlaps with what uh, Kate Rayworth uh, just presented in her fabulous video lecture. And when you read the book, one of the things she points out about Samuelson is when he was thinking about how to teach economics to engineering students at MIT, one of his inspirations was to go back to the Catholic Church and to say, what we need to do is take it out of the esoteric Latin and come up with powerful images and pictures because that's what resonates with people. That's what we can hold in our minds, right? So then that's the colonization of our imagination. So recovering the concept of commoning, making it politically useful in the present moment, I think really revolves around putting new images in people's heads, new basic ways of understanding things. So this conference is premised on the idea that everything is connected. As a geographer that speaks to the so-called first law of geography, coined by Waldo Tobler in the early 1970s. He was sort of a spatial analyst kind of a guy. And his formulation was, quote, everything is related to everything else, but near things are more related than distant things. I've always been attracted to the first part of this proposition and less so to the second. I note, though, the imprecision of the term nearness. What's near? As an American living in Australia these past three years, this question it seems particularly acute to me because I still feel a bit out of place. But near or far, here I am now connecting with you. I've been working with a group of activist scholars associated with the Communities Economies Research Network for nearly two decades, which draws centrally on the work of the feminist geographers that write under the joint pen name J.K. Gibson Graham. This global network is comprised of nearly 200 people, artists, activists, and scholars, all of whom are involved in researching experimental efforts at enacting new economies, new ecologies, new ways of being and relating to the world, a politics. 
The political intervention we're trying to make is to engage in and amplify these economic experiments. We want to multiply options, which means pushing back against the idea that still informs a lot of left theory that equates economy with capitalism. If capitalism is the only game in town, then our choices are few, resist or obey. In the first instance, pursuing a post-capitalist politics then begins with being able to see that other options are available to us. This was a much more difficult proposition to sustain back in 1996 when Gibson Graham published The End of Capitalism, just a few years from the end of history, the collapse of communism, and the decade of capitalist triumphalism. Now, 20 years later, our efforts are part of a resounding course of social movements and theorizations of other economies, documented by people like Gus Speth and Carl Garl Perovitz in their Next System projects, where they look at all the many people who are now talking about and pursuing other worlds. The Green Institute, I think, is also doing a fair job of documenting uh, all kinds of economic experimentation, um, along with Michelle Bowen's peer-to-peer projects. So uh, Julie, Jenny, Kath, and I uh, wrote up a book on many of the efforts we've been studying uh, called Take Back the Economy with a nod to the feminist slogan, Take Back the Night, from the 1970s. We aimed not to write a blueprint, but rather a book organized around a series of key questions. What do we need to survive? How do we organize enterprises and distribute surplus in a society? How can we exchange with, with others in ways that respect their needs and ours? How do we care for what we hold in common? And how do we invest in a common future? And yesterday, when I was listening to Mary's talk, there was a sort of resonance with the three questions she had in the middle of her lecture. How do we get on? How do we do it without ruining our surroundings? And what kind of philosophy should we have that allows us to cooperate rather than dominate? Three questions rather than six, a lot more eloquent. For us, then, a politics of community economy happens when people begin the serious work of answering these questions in ways that affirm our interdependence. Our interdependence is precisely what capitalism has attempted to deny and disavow, the proposition that everything is connected. Recently, Jenny, Kath, and I had the opportunity to travel to countries where people were translating Take Back the Economy into other languages, drawing on local examples. So Kath traveled to Korea to visit a thriving social economy in southern Korea that has sprung up in the wake of the anti-democratic violence and repression during the 1980s political dictatorship. So it's a whole nest of interlinked social enterprises and cooperatives. I traveled to Colombia just three months after the end of a 50-year, really 75-year conflict to visit communities in the plains surrounding Bogota who were trying to figure out how to preserve the campesino way of life in the, in, um, from the new threats posed by the peace. They are translating and using the ideas of the book as they go. Jenny traveled to Finland, a small country of six million people full of community-based initiatives among the Finns and the Sami people, working in the context of a society that is very close to rolling out a basic income. So all of these community-based initiatives in these different countries, people working long and hard, but many of them had never met one another, even in small countries like Finland. So this project, where we were trying to produce new images and artwork, um, with them, brought them together. Everything is connected, and distant things, distant people can be brought close together and we can share what we know. Commons is one of the key ideas that we can make use of in our efforts to develop a post-capitalist politics. 
this idea puts into conversation, uh, into, us into conversation with a great many others at present, but also given the concept's historical roots, it connects us to the past as well. In order for the commons to be useful to us, a first step is to rescue it from the grip of a familiar story which positions it in relation to the development of capitalism. The process of enclosure and primitive accumulation, the freeing up of labor power from agriculture, then pressed into the service of industry. Adam Smith gave us one version of this story in The Wealth of Nations, and Marx and later David Harvey repeated it, including the idea that primitive accumulation can happen on an ongoing basis, that we can be robbed more than once through the process of enclosure. There's no need to deny that this process of enclosure, privatization, and accumulation has generated the resources for capitalist development, all that is now held privately, uncommoned by a tiny few, but there's a problem when we're left imagining that that's all that there can be. Is there there the possibility that all commons have not been enclosed, as Massimo De Angelis and another David Harvey suggest, and that there might be a different role that common use and sharing of wealth can play in society? Let me trace another trajectory of common wealth. Consider for a moment the work of an Italian contemporary of Adam Smith who wrote about the collapse of the feudal social order. Antonio Genovese theorized the emerging free markets in urban-centered economies as spaces of mutuality, constituted through the joint exercise and generative of common wealth and goodwill. And goodwill he distinguishes from both intimate friendship but also from self-interest, something that becomes instead its own sociality. His vision was partially inspired by the Franciscan tradition that practiced the commons economy within the monastery for centuries. And there's a relationship with what followed. Genovese's writings informed Italy's long history of civic, the civic cooperative tradition that arose in both secular and religious institutions and persists to this day. A commonwealth, a feeling of goodwill, a way of understanding cities as spaces of mutual, mutuality among free and equal people. Indeed, this could be the beginnings of a different trajectory. The key insight for us in establishing this new trajectory has involved a slight shift in our thinking about commons, one that allows us to draw commons out of the past and into the present-day politics. Linbaugh insists that commons are only commons because there is a community that is actively constituting them, using but also caring for their continuity. He insists that we should speak of the commons as a commoning, as something that we do on an ongoing basis. A commons for us is a social practice that involves the establishment of rules. Commons are things where the terms of access and use are widely shared, where responsibility and care for a thing is distributed across a community, and where the community of benefit is widely defined. Wide, but not wide open. Part of the way that things are kept in common is to in fact exclude some uses and privilege others, to limit access as well as to grant it to define the roles and benefits of care, benefit and care. When we do these things, we are commoning. In our book, Take Back the Economy, and partially inspired by Linbaugh, Ostrom, and others, we develop the commons identicate as a way of identifying where commoning is taking place, what's being held in common, and who is a commoner. The sociality of use, access, the allocation of responsibility, care, and care and the definition of benefit distinguish commons from private property, where all, those, all that sociality is more tightly defined. Commons, too, then, are different from those things where the rules have yet to be established. 
This is the open access unmanaged commons. Uh, note that Hardin conceded in 1997, 30 years after his original essay, The Tragedy of the Commons, that his omission of the word unmanaged from his treatment of the commons was the weightiest mistake of his career. This shift in perspective from commons to commoning, from commons as a thing to a social practice, makes them easier to identify. Once you start looking, you begin to see commoning everywhere. While, commons, while a commons-managed forest or fishery comes readily to mind, it's also possible to see how cultural commons, such as language, social commons, such as healthcare and education system, and knowledge commons are things that we make and share. But more than that, that their value comes from the sharing itself. They gain value as they circulate. Even the law itself is, is understood to be something of value if it can be cited. When the courts in the US, for example, knocked back LexisNexis's attempt at claiming proprietary control over the law, there was a recognition that the system of law only functions if it's held in common. The law functions through its accessibility and continued use. And we could make a similar argument about the um, uh, common nature of the BRCA gene that allowed us to identify particular forms of breast cancer. Right? This isn't to minimize that there's a struggle to define what we hold in common, but that is, that's the work of politics. And it's at this point that we might begin to see how each of these commons are our collective inheritance to either care for or abuse. What this also means then is that we can practice more broadly a politics of commoning. We can partially or wholly common private property. For example, in the US, um, Maine, one of the neighboring states that I, near, near where I grew up, has millions of acres of private forests that have been held by timber companies. But during the, the, their long tenure, the people of Maine made regular use of that forest for hunting, recreation, fishing, and snowmobiling, snowmobiling thousands and thousands of miles of trails. But at the same time, all of those communities regularly cared for and maintained those common forests. And now that the timber companies are gone, that continues to be a de facto commons that's most of the state of Maine. We can establish rules to govern what is currently open access. Human communities are struggling to common open access oceans and atmosphere. Or we can build new commons, as Kate Rayworth just mentioned. The sociality and use of digital technologies and knowledge commons are being worked out as they're created. What this suggests is that there is an ongoing political struggle to define access and use, to identify the community of benefit, and to establish the protocols of responsibility and care. Given that even holding private property depends as well on the commoning of social relations, it's really not an opposition between stark alternatives, commoning versus privatization, but rather between commoning versus uncommoning. And I suppose what this also means is that we are all, consciously or not, caught up in a politics of commoning, establishing the rules and living by them. I think commoning as a concept allows us to see a political project much bigger than simply delegating responsibility to the state to maintain the public good, though certainly the state has a role to play in commoning. I want to shift for a moment to, to, um, from what is a common and what do we mean by it to the question of why common. I'm not alone in asking this question as the commoning agenda seems to be quite widespread. My suspicion is that this profusion of interest in commoning, in cooperativism, in the sharing economy, even in its most corporate form, reflects a growing felt consensus that things cannot go on as they have. 
that we are or have moved be- we are at or have moved beyond the social, economic, and ecological tipping points. We're inside or outside the donut collectively. To briefly remind ourselves of what we already know, here's the familiar chart of income accruing to the top deciles in a set of developed countries between 1900 and 2010 from Thomas Piketty. In the US and elsewhere, the levels of income accruing to the top decile have reached levels similar to the Gilded Age of the 1920s. One response would be to seek how to restore the conditions that prevailed in the mid-20th century, the terms of the Capital Labor Accord, which made income inequality less extreme and capitalism more bearable. But of course, it's this same impulse that's currently catalyzing a politics of resentment in the United States. This is exactly what Trump is doing. Let's make America great again, mobilizing this resentment with no intention of ameliorating it. After all, misery is what got him elected. Here we see a similar trend amongst the top 1% of income among the so-called Anglo countries, including Australia. And of course, this uncommoning of the social net products means more precarity for most of us, means less capacity to deal with life's perturbations as they arise. The complement to this uncommoning of wealth, then, is the degradation of those things that we ultimately cannot enclose. Here's an image I used last year in a lecture on climate change that I gave in New Zealand to emphasize how the last 150 years of fossil fuel combustion has affected global ambient temperatures. And here, two years later, we find ourselves continuing to warm up. Anthropogenic climate change does not replace the atmospheric, chemical, geologic, biologic, and hydrologic drivers of the climate system. Very difficult thing to explain to undergraduates. Those things keep on ticking, but the last 150 years of industrial activity, and in particular the the activities of the last two generations, have shifted how the climate system expresses itself. We didn't start the fire, as Billy Joel once put it, but we are bringing the petrol. I thought about that, and it was a little too cheesy, groany joke, but I had to go for it. Okay, but this undifferentiated we, and really the implied universal of the term Anthropocene, and this came up yesterday, obscures differing degrees of culpability. According to Heed, for example, the bulk of carbon emissions comes from around 100 private and state-owned petroleum and concrete factories. And most of the emissions have happened since the late 80s. It also aligns the differential degree of vulnerability and the consequences of this abuse of our atmospheric commons. Certainly, we saw this differential playing out in the flood events through South and Southeast Asia, except in the United States, where we broadcast the the, the disaster in Texas with that hurricane and ignored uh, the big story of 1,400 people killed in Southeast Asia um, during that incredible rain period. Those rain bombs, that's the term that, um, what's his name, our former vice president said. Um, but it also has more local consequences. Sydney's build out, particularly for working people, is taking place in the parts of Western Sydney that are already hitting 45 degrees in summer. Here we can see economic inequality and ecological inequality playing itself out, built into the environment where the only coolest in neighborhoods like this is available indoors by turning on your AC. This enclosure is built in when no consideration is given to the design features, trees, canopies, or others, other amenities that might provide relief, but equally important, create spaces of conviviality and connection while keeping the ambient temperature lower outdoors. 
which means that we are being built into loneliness here as well, right? When you go into these spaces, that's what it feels like. I'm reminded of the words of the Native American poet, John Tudell, the closing of your doors cannot shut, you out, shut us out. The closing of your doors can only shut you in. The alternative to westward expansion in Sydney is infilling the city, but here we see citizens resisting these efforts with the argument that the city is already full. And in a sense, they're right. Auto infrastructure is what gives them this sense of fullness, this urban bloat. There's a way in which all that petroleum and concrete made not by us but for us in our and in our name, creates an urban environment where we bake on the edges and where we cannot imagine another neighbor in the city center. We do have an opportunity to avoid this, but it would mean making a city space different from the one that's being presently built, and if you're living in Sydney, you know, built right now. Seeing and then enacting more sociable forms of transit, more sociable forms of cooling, might in turn allow us to build cooler urban environments a shift in design that has co co climate consequences. And currently my colleagues and I are pursuing this in a project called Cooling the Commons. And, and the idea for that title came from working in the city of Penrith where it is basically illegal to say the word climate change. But you can point to 45 degree days and say, what about keeping cool? And, and even you know, conservative politicians can somehow see the sense in that. And this brings us to the question of how do we common? How do we engage in formulating, negotiating, and ultimately living the rules of our commoning? How do we, in other words, practice a politics of commoning? We know what it is, but looking at how it's done will help us to follow a commoning trajectory. I'd like to use the balance of my, my time to talk about um, how we common. First, I'd like to think about a politics of commoning through time both making the case that we, communities, nations, and even the species are up to the challenge of responding to climate change, even if it may take a while, and by a while I mean several generations. But seeing commoning across time also underscores the extent to which a politics of commoning is one of making connections, of building and assembling relationships that in turn allow us to use without destroying, and maybe even repair. And I think if we can see, uh, see commons and commoning in the air, we might be able to recognize it more quickly, to practice it more capably in other relationships and in response to other challenges, needs, and opportunities. But really, the political intervention I'm wishing to make here is to suggest that commoning, as I'm treating it here, is possible. And one way of convincing ourselves of this proposition is to look backwards in time for evidence of it, evidence that we are capable of following this different trajectory. So physical geographer Howard Bridgman and historian Nancy Cushing's book, The Smoky City, documents the struggle largely by local residents and union members and the wider community to common the atmosphere in Newcastle starting in the 1930s. We can, use, we can look at this by using one of the tools from Take Back the Economy, the commons yardstick, which introduces a temporal framing for thinking about the practices of commoning. From the late 1930s to the 1960s, over a time frame of a generation and a half, there was a dramatic decline in air pollution in Newcastle because local regulation created political precedent that led to national policy with tangible impacts on particulate pollution. And this is some, one of those early examples of the role that citizen science can play 
in creating the conditions for shifts in politics. And it's worth noting that in this same time frame of two to three generations back, we saw similar efforts in the United Kingdom and the United States to pass clean air legislation. We can see these efforts as a care for the commons, an assumption of collective responsibility that aims to transform the conditions of access and use away from abuse. And of course, these gains require vigilance to be maintained, and each of these countries are still struggling with this, and certainly that's taken an acute form in the United States. But the real story about atmospheric commenting, of course, is taking place in where most people live, the majority world, and I would refer you simply to that study from The Lancet um, out this month that traces one out of every four deaths to air and water pollution globally. So this is obviously an ongoing effort and has to be. We can find further evidence of this trajectory in relation to the intergenerational struggle with ozone-depleting chemicals. While the story begins with the synthesis of CFCs in the early 20th century, it wasn't until the 1970s that this struggle got started when two scientists published a paper in Nature which hypothesized that ozone-depleting chemicals were mitigating the upper atmosphere and depleting the ozone layer. And of course, for their troubles, they got attacked by the same people that run the Heartland Institute to this day um, and are trying to undermine the science around climate change. One of the two most notable scientist has dropped dead, but the other one's still out there, um, you know, screwing it up. And and he also, by the way, if you've read uh, Oreski and Conway's book, uh, Merchants of Doubt, they are also involved in muddying the science around bloody secondhand smoke. Okay, so, in... in, um, Let's see here. In 1985, what became known as the hole in the ozone layer was detected and visually represented for the first time. And this is what led rapidly to the formation of the Montreal Protocol on substances that deplete the ozone layer and worldwide phase out of ozone depleting chemicals. By 2005, the production and consumption of ODCs had decreased by 95%. These chemicals have an atmospheric lifetime of 50 to 100 years, So it will still take several generations to repair the damage. We're talking about 2085, more or less. Nevertheless, the Montreal Protocol has been dubbed one of the world's most successful environmental agreements. Here again, we can see how a politics of direct action played a part in this struggle, including the building trade unions in Australia who refused to install fire suppressing systems. This is in the 80s before the legislation that contained ozone depleting chemicals. Right? And ultimately, that put pressure on the developers who then put pressure on the chemical manufacturers to come up with an alternative. Right? And those are, the thi- those are the sorts of moves that provide the operative condition for, for a polit- struggle in the political arena. Right? So we can look at that and see it in the 30s. We can see it in the 70s. And of course, I think what that means is that we need a politics of direct action around uh, dealing with anthropogenic climate change. I'm moving to the crash landing of my talk for those of you who are getting antsy or irritated by my accent um, that's really been ruined in the last six months, um, if it wasn't earlier. Anyway, so anthropogenic climate change is a different kind of challenge than ozone depletion. As Timothy Morton says, it's a massive distributed problem that's difficult to comprehend. And yet, this is the thing that we have to deal with. As I intimated earlier, climate change is, in a sense, designed into the built environment and transportation system. But more than that, it's designed into our food system, healthcare systems, defense, and even education. 
And I'm reminded here of that pivotal scene in Jaws when uh, the chief is smoking the cigarette and chumming the water, waiting for the shark, and then he sees it for the first time coming out of the water, and the cigarette drops out of his mouth, and then he just simply says in that understated tone, we're going to need a bigger boat. (laughs) We're going to need a bigger boat to deal with climate change. But what the commons concept allows us to keep in in the foreground is that commoning is something that we do together. And in relation to just energy generation, what we can see here is a stitching together of a broader constituency of human and non-human actors that might make this kind of change more real, more possible, and more discernible, right? So just again, probably at the risk of going over what you already know, we're experiencing a revolution of PV, photovoltaic, Uh, technologies and new storage systems, new systems of finance, and what was mentioned yesterday was even the role that blockchain technologies might play in the creation of new energy markets, forms of civic engagement from lock the gate to 350.org to solar citizens, and of course, the Green Party, new forms of sociality and conviviality where people can experience the city in less energetically intensive ways, and renewable energy, procured on a municipal scale, all of these disparate efforts and ideas potentially transform the energetic system and in turn how we access and use the atmosphere, constituting a wide community of benefit, a politics of commoning. And this could be linked to still other efforts. So for example, a universal basic income payment might allow for people to kind of turn down uh, their activities to live a little bit more simply, and I know this is something that the Green Institute has explored carefully over the last couple of years. So there's a way in which a politics of commoning is open and accommodating to multiple efforts. So for the past few minutes here, I've tried to make an argument. Oops, I forgot that my automation is still going on. (laughs) Yeah, all right, there we go. Atmospheric commoning assemblage should probably be turned into an acronym. So for the past few minutes, I've tried to make the argument that commoning politics is an alternative trajectory, that we can see this capacity for collective action that emerges in in relation to community efforts to common the atmosphere, to redefine the rules of access and use, to reestablish rules around practices of care and responsibility over generations and in ways that benefit the larger community. We can recognize the commoners and knowing them by their works through time. The politics of commoning enrolls an array of actors and processes, technological and financial innovation, political movements, changes in habits and practice. The changes it attempts to produce is something other than a capitalist politics of uncommoning, something much bigger than simple market-tweaking interventions. And really, there are other stories that we could tell about commoners, commoning, and commons. Michelle Bowens, for example, has looked into the implications of open source software community and platform technologies and imagined new ways of commoning, manufacturing, healthcare, resource, and decision-making, even politics, even reimagining the state as a partner and fellow commoner. And here I would refer you to his essay on the partner state in Bologna, where that's being enshrined into law, where social enterprises take the lead and the state follows and the objective is to maintain the multiple commons that compose urban life in a beautiful city. So what my colleagues and I are doing reflects our role as educators and researchers. What we want to do is make commoning more discernible, practicable, and attractive to young people. We lecture on this on a regular basis, and by we I mean the 200 people that are in this network and operating in a variety of countries. And here it would seem that we can draw on a knowledge of commons and commoning near and far 
bringing them close and insisting that everything is connected in this sharing. So thank you for your time and attention. I uh, don't have my copy of Take Back the Economy with me, but equally I'd recommend, <laughs> recommend um, you taking a look at that if some of the ideas that um, Stephen talked about today uh, interested you. It's a, it's a really great book, a really practical book that um, allows you to explore the, your world around you and the, the, the different kind of economies that we interact with every day that we don't always see or, or um, envisage as economies. So another recommendation. So we do have about oh, just under half an hour for questions. So I think that was one of the reasons why I mentioned uh, that concept of the partner state in Bologna, really as an, an example of um, a lot of their B cooperatives that are social purpose co-ops taking the lead on the delivery of services, right? And it could be everything from mental health services to rubbish removal. Now the big problem in the Italian context is that the social enterprise sector has actually been infiltrated by the mafia um, and not just waste services. So, um, you know, David Bollier, who wrote a fantastic book called Think Like a Commoner, um, he, he described in the Middle Ages when they had the commons agriculture that there was this practice of um, what they called beating the bounds. And that meant that all the villagers walked around the edge and looked for poachers, looked for people who built their fences into the common areas and knocked them down or kicked them out. Right? So, you know, I, I don't mean to, like, what I'm trying to do is make visible that we do share things on a regular basis, right? And, and we engage in these negotiations explicitly and tacitly all the time. But we can, be, we can move from being inside of commons unconsciously to commoners for ourselves more explicitly and politically. Um, second point I might make. Uh, I gave a lecture on this in New Zealand last year at a conference called Counterfutures. Um, that was started by the secular left, but has basically been taken over by the Maori community there. Um, it was an amazing conference. And there, you know, the issue is not commoning, but who owns the land, right? There's this question around um, sovereignty and control. Um, so I have a colleague, Maria Barge, who's using this same framework. She is Maori, and is saying, well, actually, there's a way in which you can reconcile indigenous politics with commoning. It's really about sort of defining the community of benefit, right? And there you can see a, a different kind of partner state where geothermal technologies, fisheries, and forests are subject to this negotiation between the Pakia um, and the Maori and the two states, right? So I think that that's an example. I don't, is it wrong to talk about New Zealand too much here? Okay. I, you know, I, I know I'm probably stepping on landmines. As long as I don't mention the All Blacks, I should be all right. Um, yeah, but I, look, I think there's a way in which we can look at, at that. Uh, in Colombia, definitely, there was amazing people in the peace who are trying to figure out who are just saying, look, we don't want to embrace modernization. We don't want the petrol companies coming in here now that the bombing has stopped and, and mining or, or fracking or logging or growing cut flowers. We want to keep things as they are. And I, I know it's probably hard for us, some of us anyways to accept that, you know, that they, they want that, that Campesino way of life. But for me, they were practicing a, an extensive politics of commoning, right? Because they understood that what they had was food sovereignty. And what they had was one another, and it was super powerful to be there. Um, Long-winded answer. Sorry about that. 
Oh, the, the basic question was um, around uh, universal basic income and um, the notion that it's, it's um, supported by various people, progressive left people, as well as the Silicon Valley, um, you know, mm. right-wing economists as well. I'll let you answer it, Steve. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll do my best. I mean, it's true that... Um, you know, like as a Milton Friedman, for example, embraced cooperatives towards the end of his life as well. So there are there are libertarians in my country who try and take over these ideas. Um, but you know, I, that's politics, isn't it? I know you guys would know better than me. Um, and, and likewise, um, and I'm gonna. His name is Dutch, so I'm gonna murder it. Van Paris, yeah. I don't know. Someone, no, I'm waiting for somebody to... He's like Mr. Basic Income, and he just wrote a new book, published this year, on the subject. Um, yeah, and he makes that same observation, that there is a kind of... There's a right-wing attempt to kind of occupy and define the terms of that idea. Um, and then what I could really imagine is a kind of neo-feudal technologic state where we're given bread circuses and a debit card or something, or maybe it'll be stamped on our arm. Um, yeah, so I mean, to me, like that's a political struggle to define the entailments of it. So, for, like, the touchstone for me is um, uh, Ferguson's book, "Give a Man a Fish," where he grinds, uh, grounds the idea of a basic income in this notion of the rightful share that comes out of the kind of uh, politics in South Africa and Namibia. Mm. Um, and there, it's a totally different logic in terms of how people exercise a right to livelihood. And he takes it away from the idea of it's being something given to us to, uh, 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 this is our common inheritance, just the way Kropotkin described it. And again, you know, we don't have to talk about this in hypothetical terms anymore, right? Like, it's really happening. There are really people saying, okay, we've, we can produce this prodigious wealth from technology and robots, and why don't we um, redistribute some of that wealth in a way that would actually emancipate human labor, and then we can have what do they call it, full luxury space communism? Yeah. <laughs> Sign me up. So this gentleman down the front first. And then. Um, my name's Ian Morland. Thanks very much for your talk, Stephen. Um, two issues. One is, uh, in your, on your last slide, you said that uh, a commons can be owned privately by a state or have open access. And I would have thought one of the defining criteria for a commons is that it's not owned privately. And secondly, I was just wondering if you could address the issue, the problem of the tragedy of the commons. Um, indigenous societies typically care for their commons, as, uh, for example, uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander societies. But um, they, they have cohesive societies where people have an identity and they all uh, see themselves as part of, of one group. We don't live in a society like that. We have a, you know, that, that idea of that cohesiveness has been undermined by individualism and probably also by multiculturalism. Um, so in our society, it seems like to me that we're less likely to jointly care for commons than indigenous cultures do. So to me, the tragedy of the commons is both an actual problem, where if something's not owned by privately, it tends to be neglected, but it's also a problem of just that phrase, the tragedy of the commons um, would seem, you know, that, that would probably make uh, economic students and other people 
think that the commons is a bad idea. Mm. Yeah, no, Ian, thanks for that question. It's, and it's a really excellent one. So, yeah, and I'll admit it doesn't suffice to just say that Hardin had second thoughts about the title of his essay 30 years later, um, that, you know, the tragedy of the commons was really the tragedy of the unmanaged commons, because then we're still left with the task of how do you manage the commons? Um, so just to speak to that question in, uh, uh, first before getting to the other one, um, I have a colleague who is in, um, the, works in fishery science in resource management. He's a geographer. And he worked in Maine for a number of years with lobstermen. And lobstermen are about the most seemingly individualistic people you could imagine, right? Like they actually carry guns in their boats. And if they catch somebody pulling up their traps, it's on for all and young, right? Or however that phrase goes. And you'd think that they, they would be the ultimate atomized individuals, right? But they actually do live in communities. Um, and the problem that they were facing, like many other fishers around the world, is biofishery science saying, well, we're we'll running transects in the ocean, and oh, here are the fish populations, so therefore we need to limit days at sea and basically destroy your community in the process, right? And that's, that's the, the, the inevitability of avoiding the tragedy of the commons, we have to enclose it, right? That's the logic that biofishery science plays out. So what my friend Kevin did was he actually went out with um, lobstermen, trawlers and uh, people who did other kinds of fishing. And he, had the, he looked at their plot maps. He talked with all of their, the captains and the first mates. Um, and what he found was that actually there is a sociality out in the open ocean. There is mutual aid. And they actually, um, a lot of those fishing practices are quite complementary. So he actually produced, using GIS, a, commu a community of people who could begin to recognize themselves and who knew that they had knowledge about where the fish actually are, which is what biofishery science conveniently ignores, because they just run transects in the ocean. Right? So then they had the expert knowledge, and then that was the basis for beginning to work with fishery scientists who gave a shit, and then they began to inculcate community as a data layer into the management strategy. Right? So to me, that's the nitty-gritty infighting of how to produce the politics of commoning, where you produce the community as an identity alongside the sort of technical attributes of management. Now, I don't know, like, so that, but it's still, it's a local, parochial, self-identified community, right? So it doesn't, it doesn't then hold that we can take that commoning concept and imagine, oh, well, we can go to Sydney and, um, you know, constitute a commons community amongst a group of strangers. But I think that is the challenge that we're facing, right? Like if we want to come up with social practices around cooling, more public pools, outdoor spaces for barbecues and so forth that, de you know, that decrease our reliance on air conditioning, what we need is the sociality, right? And, but I think to me it's a little bit like what Mary was saying yesterday. You develop the practice first and the sense of who we are comes second, right? It, it's an, our identity can be an emergent property along with our capacity to care, right? Like that's something we can actually grow or we can squander, much like commons themselves, until we're left with you know, a world of people where, and I've met many young people who feel this way, they are in competition with everybody else. And what Margaret Thatcher said, there is no society, only individuals. I've seen the moment where students say, wow, that's really true. And that's, what's, that's America for you right there. Right, I, don't, I don't feel it as much here. I think you guys, it's, it's good here. I feel lucky. Isn't that the word? All right. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Well, oh, oh um, yeah. 
Right. So that's where that, that little, the fast one I pulled on you, basically, of separating commons as a property type from commoning as a social practice. Mm. Right. So we can practice the politics of commoning in relation to any type of property, whether it's open source, state-owned, or private. So the state of Maine have being privately owned by, by the um, big logging companies, and yet there are commoning practices there that once those paper companies went away, now it really comes to the fore in terms of management of the forests. Can we common something that remains privately owned, or by commoning that resource that we have to stop it from being private? I suppose you're right in the sense that insofar as Maine has been engaged in a four or five generation long process of commoning the forest, they're changing the definition of private property, right? So it's no longer, it's no longer private property, it's private property, right? Because everybody knows there's no trespassing signs in Maine, right? Like you, you, you respect the boundaries in other ways and you can snowmobile wherever you want so long as there's a trail and snow. I'm wondering if you need to distinguish or relate or contrast uh, commoning with localism and localization. Because in a world of climate change, local knowledge does not guide you as to what is likely to happen. Mm-hmm. All right, well, I think in relation to the, the connection between commons and um, cooperatives, I would refer you to the work of a guy named Ian Torcia, who's a Italian. And he has been thinking about um, co um, cooperatives as commons-based enterprises. And the thing that he points to technically with respect to the Italian cooperatives is the laws that govern the indivisible reserves. So when, like when the co-op develops a capital fund, they have this indivisible reserve that, um, that they use to expand the business or, or govern it or deal with depreciation costs. But the interesting thing is if a co-op fails in um, Italy, that common reserve is dissolved and then actually distributed to start other co-ops as a matter of law. So what that solves is the problem of demutualization, which is what happened in England when they had various co-ops and then Margie comes in with these great incentives and whoo, everybody privatizes and that's the end of it, right? So there, I think there, there could be a constitutive relationship between the commons ethos and the generation of businesses that are governed collectively. Um, there are also people uh, legal theorist Simon Deacon um, being one of them, who theorizes the corporate form more broadly as a type of place where a commons politics can take shape. Because after all, the corporation is a fictional entity that owns the assets and can make contracts, which also was a way of saying nobody owns the corporation, right? Like That's the other little fast one that's been pulled on us that could then allow us to, I don't know, engage in class struggle or something. <laughs> um, commoning and localism, yeah, totally, right? Like I, I, I'm a big fan of Rob Hopkins and transition towns, and I, and I think there's a commoning logic at work there. But somehow we have to be able to think about that and live there because we live in the corporate, corporal bodies. Um, but at the same time, like yeah, the issues we're wrestling with, the the sort of the layer, the geologic layer of the Anthropocene isn't just composed of carbon dioxide; it's radionuclides, plastic, and other um, you know artificial chemicals, all of which are making life increasingly less hospitable. And and unless we're capable of of holding. That ability, that ability to kind of common locally and think about it globally, uh, we're stuffed, right? I mean, that's, yeah. 
Uh, let's see here. The first question makes me wish I was a labor historian, because um, then I'd be able to give you a better answer. Um, I, I, in terms of, you know, again, I, I think Michelle Bowen's work is, is masterful on this subject. So when he develops the notion of the partner state um, in this essay, he really talks about the relationship between um, open source software development and its commercialization, right? Like that moment of enclosure. But then he points out that because of the types of licensures, there's a possibility of actually capturing some of the value of that market activity and giving it over to the people who maintain custodial control over the code, the sort of voluntary associations that make sure that um, these open source software systems still function and what's in, what patch gets included as new code and what one doesn't. You know, like I, I'm not a tech guy, so that's about the limit of my understanding. But there's a kind of a way in which even commercial activity can actually then, rather than being co-opted, um, becomes constitutive of a commoning logic, right? And so for me, like if we think about the sharing stuff, right? Like, like if you go to San Francisco now, that is a town that is owned by the so-called sharing economy. The other side of it is there are unions in the United States who are trying to figure out how to develop healthcare systems run on a platform basis that are owned by a co-op that's also supported by a union, right? So Janelle Orsi, when she came here and spoke last year, like she's at the center of that effort and figuring, about, figuring out legally enabling conditions to allow for that kind of relationship. Trevor Schultz is another person who's done that same thing. Not gonna lie, obviously a battle. Um, and even like control over the word sharing eventually could turn into its opposite, right? Which is, ooh, not owning. Um, yeah, so I, 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 don't, I don't know what the future of unions are. Like my, my friend who I wish was gonna be here was uh, Dan Musel who's associated with Earthworker, right? Like their long-term project has been how do we align co-ops, union movement with like a real, a, what a real substantive just transition would be. And, and I, you know, I, I can think of similar initiatives in the United States that are more grounded in the environmental justice communities um, and that's kind of where my, my politicization happened. But yeah, I mean, and, and we've got parallel histories in terms of the declining power of organized labor, but yeah, I don't, yeah, I'm just depressed now. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> I think we'd have, to, we'd have to insist that the state begin to think like a commoner, right? And, and I, I, what form that would take, I, I don't, like, I feel like that's a, a question above my, my pay grade, really. But, but I, I could imagine it taking a number of forms. Like, um, with respect to healthcare, it doesn't make sense to me that the human genome should be private property. And yet, if you participate in 23andMe, for example, just like Instagram, they own your data, right? So there are people out there who are trying to figure out how to um, co co communalize or, co or common um, the human genome that might in then inform precision medicine, right? And then, of course, what we're also talking about is the capital that we might attach to these types of medical innovations. Um, you know, I think, to me, a commoning ethic can, can inform the way we think about transit, for example, or housing, for that matter, right? Like, I have a colleague, Louise Crabtree, who has been steadily just pushing over the last, I don't know, three decades to like really make um, cooperative owned housing a part of um, how we think about housing in this society, drawing from examples in the United States and elsewhere. Um, you know, it, it is instructive to me that 
like when the GFC hit Boston, like the big housing co-op, the, 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 the mothership, Dudley Street Neighborhood Initiative, no foreclosures, right? And that's in a working class majority, minority community. And then you had other communities, ooh, how did you, how did you guys do that? Right, like, I mean, so like power of example, right? So you can, I think, and that's an example of a community-based organization with now a 40-year history where the guy who's number two below the mayor is from Dudley Street Neighborhood Initiative. So for me, like, I don't know. I think it's, it's um, sorry, I was about to get military for a moment, but it's, you know, we got to build strong sort of citizen-based organizations that then move into the state. I mean, that's probably my American way of thinking about it. How do you reconcile the management of the commons by a community who is anchored to or connected to a place with increasingly fluid and mobile populations that have over the kind of... <coughs> you know, Thanks for both of those questions. And Steve, I, um, I, I guess my answer would be that um, if you're thinking about a, a place that has some kind of integrity, right, if it's got sort of a kind of an extant social and cultural commons, there's got to be sort of protocols around how people enter into and become part of that community. Um, and, and I guess that brings up the uncomfortable question of it, commenting isn't just a matter of inclusion, but also exclusion and possibly preclusion of certain types of activities. And, and I don't know if we have a good template for that, really. Um, you know, in, in, in Maine, um, which is, uh, to me, a whole series of interlinked natural commons that compose the Maine lifestyle, um, you, could, you could live there and raise your children and your grandchildren and people from Maine would still say, you're from away, right? Like it takes forever to belong to that kind of a place. Um, I don't know if that's helpful or hurtful, but it is like it's an identifiable ethos. And maybe if we knew more stories like that, people might think, okay, yeah, I have wealth and resources and unlimited mobility, but I wanna be a part of this community and belong to it, right? Like how do we actually model that, right? Like that to me is a massive cultural shift. And yet, you know, yesterday, and, and I totally agree with it, like this idea of we're going to need to learn how to do with less, right, as, as a society, if we're going to have any chance of exiting this century in a, the context of a civilization. Um, so to me, that, that might mean, like, I don't know, having a kind of ongoing therapeutic practice around how do we let go of a world of unfettered mobility and infinite wealth and embrace, like, we live in a finite world as finite beings with limits, right? And that's, 
that's the magic of commenting, right? Like that's, that's how we can stay inside the donut rather than allowing some people to fall out of it or overshooting the mark. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't want to live in that world, or I guess we already do live in that world. Um, in terms of local examples, that to me that's like a very interesting micro uh, example of kind of a, a, a common space, a public area with competing uses. Um, I would say, and I've already mentioned them, the Dudley Street Neighborhood Initiative outside of Boston is a great example of um, a, a, a community-based organization that has done multiple commons-based initiatives with a huge youth focus, where they've had to sort of negotiate those subtleties about you know, how, do you, how do you accommodate the needs of young people who are full of energy with other folks in the community, right? So that's sort of that everyday work. Um, nothing comes to mind here in the Australian context at the moment. Um, thank you very much, <laughs> I, I have a question, just a quick question. You've mentioned a number of really interesting sources in the course of uh, your talk, and including the Commoning Network. Would you be prepared to just prepare a list and put on the website? Because I think a lot of people would like to access the Longing Plant or everything. We'd really help if we just have that list of references. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I would Great. be happy to do that. Thank you. Well, can we all just thank Steve again? For